Testing. There we go. Oh, that was some good singing. It really was. Good worship leading and good singing from you guys. Hey, before I jump into this, um, just wanted to touch base. Uh, talking last week about some of the transitions we're going to go through, and I know uh, for the parents, one of the questions that keeps coming up is what's going to happen with the junior high. I just want to let you know, as a church, that's where our bench is the deepest. So um, we're going to be having our other staff uh, as a part of the junior high taking that over. So uh, that'll be excellent. And I also was able to uh, talk to some other adults in our church this week and a couple weeks before, and uh, they would like to get involved as well. So God is really blessing us when it comes to people stepping up and being a part of uh, that area of ministry. So um, you can take a deep breath. You know, we are, we are definitely uh, making sure everything's taken care of when it comes to our kids, when it comes to our teens. Um, other thing is, as we go through transition, um, now is a great time for me to kind of challenge you a little bit. Those of you who are members, if you sign the membership covenant, it says you need to be involved in an area of ministry, serving somewhere in ministry. So I'm kind of calling you on it. If you're not, okay, we're going to track you down. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, if you, I want to encourage you to be a part of that. If you're a regular attender, um, man, now would be a great time to jump in and get involved, connect somewhere in the ministry, give me a call and say, hey, where are your needs? And, and I'll try to get you connected to someone who can plug you in because wonderful time to get engaged in the body uh, of Christ, especially during some transition times when we need more people to step up and, and get involved. So I'm excited about those of you who, um, who, have, who have approached me already and said, hey, whatever we need to do, you just let us know. That has been encouraging to me and encouraging to the church. Uh, we really appreciate that. The other thing is, uh, and you may find this funny, but people ask me all the time, uh, how do you give here at Grace Chapel? Because we don't pass around the offering plate. The offering, the offering boxes are at each door, one over here and one over here. You can give it before the service or after the service, anytime uh, you'd like. So um, great to have everyone here. Uh, I'm going to read from Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to start at verse 16 and go through verse 26. We, we started this, uh, this passage last week, and we'll, we'll continue it this week. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are, if, but if you are led by the Spirit, then you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with his passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. You know, last week we talked about how to make changes in our lives that would be beneficial to ourselves, obviously, and beneficial to those around us. How do we make the changes in our lives that are necessary to truly, to truly make an impact that, that will allow us to become more like Jesus Christ? Because that's the goal. The goal is to be more like him. Whoever dies the most like him, whoever is the most like him before you die wins. Okay, that's the race we're on. 
Whichever of us becomes more like Jesus Christ, by the time we die, you win, or we win. Whoever it is, that's the, that's the winner. This morning in the book of Galatians, I want to continue this conversation as Paul addresses those areas that seem to cause us to slip up the most. Kind of lays out a, a, a group of, of, of problems or, or sins or whatever you want to call it that causes most of us to, to slip up. He says they're obvious. They're obvious, he says, and he starts with the most obvious, sex. Things haven't changed much in the last 2,000 years, my friends. He starts with the most obvious, sex. Um, human beings are always getting themselves into trouble with their sexuality. It's just the way it is. I mean, it just seems that everywhere you turn, people are getting themselves into trouble. Now, first, before I move on and say anything else, let me say this, that sex is good, okay? Within the, within the, the boundaries of God, how God designed it, sex is great. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. God designed it for us, for our pleasure, okay? So don't, don't leave here thinking, oh, so you go into church and they tell you sex is bad and everything. We come from different backgrounds and church backgrounds, but I'm telling you right now, that God designed it for our pleasure. It is good. It is beautiful. It is wonderful. Whatever words you want to use to describe it, that's what it is, okay? All good, all right? So we have that. It's good. But it can be easily distorted. It can be easily misused. That's the problem. It can be so misused. In our culture today, we, we, we invent new ways. We constantly invent new ways of abusing it. We do. Um, in our culture, everything, everything in our culture is, is sold almost by using sexual images or whatever else. You can't watch your, a TV show, you can't watch a commercial, you can't watch a game without being bombarded by sexual images to either sell something or to manipulate you in some way. Um, that's just the way it is. And again, like I said, we invent new ways as a culture to misuse and abuse it. Friends with benefits. When I was growing up, you had friends. You didn't get any benefits. You know what I'm saying? They're your friends. Now you got friends with benefits. You don't know what that is. Ask me later or talk to one of your students. They'll explain what, what, what's going on there. Not that they're doing it, but this, this is out there, and they hear about it. Um, cyber sex, um, sexting. I mean, we invent new ways. Whatever technology comes up, we invent new ways to misuse and abuse what God has given us that is so beautiful. The Apostle Paul says that we are to put to death we are to crucify. We are to put to death those parts of the human nature that have to do with sexual immorality um, or sexual impurity. He says, put it aside. Put it to death. Do away with those things because it will have a profound impact on our lives if we don't. Christ calls us to be set apart. This is just biblical. Jesus Christ calls us to be set apart to become more like him, not to get swallowed up in our culture. And the problem is we as Christians seem to get carried along by our culture and swallowed up in the culture and go along with whatever the new thing is that's going on. We don't realize what the Bible says about it. We just know what our culture says about it. And whatever the culture says, that must be right. We don't want to be outside. We don't want to be set apart. We want to be like everyone else. And then we get sucked up or swallowed up into the culture. And you know what kills me too is people say, oh, see, I come to church, church and they're talking about this, talking about sex. God's just a big cosmic killjoy. It has nothing to do with God being cosmic killjoy. God invented it, okay? It's his idea, the problem is God also knows when it's misused how much damage it can, it can be done. How when it's misused, the consequences are, are so devastating. God understands that. My goodness, I've been in ministry over 25 years, and I can tell you the devastation that has happened in people's lives 
because they've stepped outside of the boundaries of how God created it. So we have that. Paul lays that out for us. And I, and I also want to encourage you and realize that if this is something you're struggling with, this is something that is also a process. Change is a process. But we need to begin that process. We need to look at this process, and we need to work on, in our lives and work on our lives in this area because the Bible says this is a process, and God wants to slowly help us overcome all these things, everything we're going to be talking about. We need to make Jesus the Lord of our, of our lives in that area. Jesus needs lordship over that area of your life. He needs to be first. We need to put him first in every area of our lives. And that starts on the inside. We're having this series inside out. That starts on the inside. It starts in the heart. It starts in the mind. You see, my mind controls my emotions. The way I think about things directly influences the way I, I, I feel about them. The way I think about them directly reflects the way I feel about them. If you can control or influence your mind, you can control and influence your attitudes and your actions about sex or anything else. It is the controlling of your mind. That's where it starts. That's what the Bible speaks of, the heart being the seat of all these things. The mind, the heart, this is what matters. This is where it all starts. This is how we overcome. Why do you think Jesus said, when he, when, when he said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind from the inside out? Love God from the inside out, all your mind, all your heart, all your soul. Jesus understood God understands that's where change takes place. Paul believes that the Spirit of Christ permeates every bit of our minds and therefore can influence our act actions, our attitudes, our behaviors, our thoughts, can affect all of those things. The Spirit of God can affect all of those things, how I feel. In the same way, that is the way the Holy Spirit can change my, my, my character issues. That's the way the Holy Spirit can change my, my, my personality flaws. That's the way the Holy Spirit can change my unhealthy addictions. He starts from the inside and works out. Works on my life from the inside out, my mind, my heart, my soul. When I give that to the Holy Spirit, when I give that to, the, to God, God can begin to work in our lives to help us overcome the changes that we need to make. And as I go through this, this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about change. Some of these things may be areas where you need to change. Some of these things may be affecting areas that you need to change. And so it's important that we address these because all of us fall into these categories in some place, in some area. All of us need to work on these things. You know, it, it may not be that's, your, that's, your, that's the part you really need to handle or work on, but that may be affecting another area of your life that, is, that will have a profound effect on how you grow in your relationship with Christ. So for Paul, when you talk about the Holy Spirit, for Paul, the first purpose of the Holy Spirit in, in Romans chapter 8 was to, uh, was to move in our lives, to change the negative patterns in our lives. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit moves in us if we accept Christ into our lives. The Holy Spirit moves in us to change the negative patterns that are in our lives. And there's nothing in your life that the Holy Spirit can't change. I don't care how deeply it's rooted. I don't care how long you've been engrossed. I don't care what has mastered you. There's nothing that has so captured you that the Holy Spirit of God living in you can't overcome and change it if you'll allow him to make that change. Now, before I move on, I want to give you just a thought um, that, will help, um, that will help bring about the change that you want to see in your life. 
I can't, I can't go into great detail and all these things, but I just want to give you one thought. I don't just want to lay that out and move on. I want to give you one thought there here that will, that will help you. Um, if the battle starts in your minds, then that's where we have to, that's where we have to address it. That's, where, that's the point of attack, our minds. We need to attack it at that point. Instead of trying to overcome your temptation, you should really try to avoid your temptation. You know, some people think, oh, you know, I, I can handle it, and they march right into that temptation. They put themselves in the midst of an, of an environment that's going to create that type of temptation, thinking, oh, I can handle it, I can overcome it. No, you really can't. And if you continue to put yourself in that environment, maybe you can this time, maybe you can the next time, but the third time or the fourth time, at some point, you're going to be at a weak spot, and that's gonna, that, that temptation is going to have a profound effect in your life. So instead of trying to overcome and battle your temptation all the time, try to avoid it. Now, I don't know about you, but I would rather not fight the lion if I can starve it to death. Now, whatever lion it is for you in your life, I would personally rather not fight that lion face to face if I can starve the lion to death. If I can cut it off, if I can cut off the source of its power. And that's what I'm talking about. We need to, if we struggle with a specific addiction of some kind, we need to cut it off at the source. Seriously, if porn is a problem with you, if that's a problem, what you need to do is do everything in your power to eliminate the possibility of it. Eliminate it. Take it out of the equation. Don't put yourself in difficult situations. Starve it. If temptation starts in the mind, listen, if temptation starts in the mind, if things that are sometimes just things come, if some temptation starts in the mind and the mind realizes that it can't act out on that thought, the thought dies. Satan is going to pour into you, okay? Pour into you different thoughts. You know, you're driving down the road, you're whatever, minding your own business, thoughts come to you. You didn't just, hey, I'm going to think about this. It just comes to you. If the mind realizes that it cannot act out on that thought, that thought will die. And when things happen to you, just so you know, if things come into your mind, it's not a sin if something comes into your mind. It's when you don't take that thought captive and give it over to God. And you allow it to well up in you, and then you have opportunity to act on it. Therein lies the problem. What we need to do is cut it off. Eliminate the possibilities. And Wednesday nights, this coming Wednesday night at 6.30, we're going to come together. We're going to talk about this in more detail. You know, how do I do that? What are some specific ways that I can cut off? I don't have to fight this lion face to face, that I can starve it to death. What are some ways that we can do that? We're going to talk about that more uh, on Wednesday night. Because if, if, if you have direct access to those things that tempt you the most, uh, there's, it's only a matter of time before you're going to fall, before you're really going to continue to struggle with that. Another weakness is in the category of anger. Anger. Paul uses words such as anger and hatred, discourse, jealousy, fits of rage, dissensions, revenge. Paul uses words like that. When we, can, when we cannot control our temper, it has a profound impact on us as individuals and on those around us. You know that. When you can't control yourself, you can't control your temper, it affects your relationships. It affects the way you feel inside. It actually has physical problems that are caused when you can't control your own anger. Have you ever noticed this also, that fighting and jealousy and envy and even revenge are a way of life for some people? You know, you've been around, you know, you've been around some people in your life, whether it's a person at work or a family member or a friend or neighbor, they can't seem to survive without some kind of conflict or controversy in their lives. 
It's amazing to me. It's like if they don't have something, they don't know what to do with themselves. So they create problems to get upset about or get angry about or get jealous about something. There's always something wrong with someone else. You need to make sure that you have boundaries in your life and not allow those people to influence you. Because that's one of the ways that Satan uses to, 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 to feed into some of those issues in your own life. You may be fighting that, but if someone's constantly around you saying, you know what really bothers me? So-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. I hate that person. This person always, I understand. And they, they'll come up to you and start a conversation that, that even sounds like it's not that bad. And they'll laugh about something. You know what really bothers me about Pastor Jeff? I'll tell you. Let me tell you. You know, they, ha, 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 yeah, that's true. And they pick one little thing that's true, and then they go off. And next thing you know, you're in a conversation you never wanted to be in. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about anyone. And then all of a sudden, that feeds that little monster in you that you're trying to overcome. You've got to put boundaries around some people who are like that. I've also noticed that, it, when, uh, that when life becomes stressful, maybe you've noticed this as well, when life becomes stressful, that boiling point that, you know, your boiling may take a little longer. Other people are, you know, they're there. But when, when you're stressed out, which is a lot of people in our culture today, that boiling point is just right below the surface. I mean, it's just right there. And it doesn't take a, a very much to have it explode. And what we need to do in our lives, we need to make sure that we're aware of that. We need to make sure that we're aware that we are tense and that if you're struggling in that area, be careful. Be careful knowing that that boiling point is right below the surface or you're going to lash out at those around you. That's going to have another negative, profound effect on your relationships. Now, anger in and of itself, just like sex in and of itself and those things, are, are not a sin. Anger, like sex, is a gift of God. It's a gift of God. There's nothing wrong. Righteous anger. There's nothing wrong with righteous anger. If you're watching the news and you're seeing what's going on in Haiti and you may be angry about the fact that they're not getting the supplies fast enough and they're, you're watching people lay in these beds and that's frustrating you and your anger, your righteous anger may lead you to say, you know what, this is ridiculous. Someone needs to do something about it. And that re you realize maybe for the first time in your life is you're the person who's supposed to get involved and do something about it and have an impact on other people's lives. So anger, watch something injustice in the world and saying, you know, this is unacceptable. This is completely unacceptable. And that anger getting you involved in what God wants you to get involved in is not wrong. Nothing wrong with that at all. There's nothing wrong with your anger in that way. But when the power of evil can take our anger and, 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 and distort it, when the power of evil gets a hold of our angle, anger, it, it turns it against us. That which is not wrong becomes wrong because the evil one turns that against us. Healthy anger becomes distorted. It becomes warped. It becomes sinful. And when sin is added to anger, when sin is added to anything, especially when it's added to anger, it's like, Houston, we have a problem, a big problem. And we start to unleash our anger on our kids you know, at first it's the dog, you know what I mean? The dog can't really do anything back, so it's like kick the dog or yell at the dog or throw the dog out, whatever the case may be. And then what you start to unleash your anger on the people around you, on your kids. You start to unleash your anger on your parents. You start to unleash your anger on your spouse or your, or your friends and your neighbors or, say, the person you just don't like that much in school or you don't really like at work, and you start to unleash that anger. Maybe the person just cut you off. That person just cut you off and... Boom, you explode. You know, this helps me not to explode at people who cut me off in the car. I don't really 
get too worked up about it anyway. But my, my thought is always the, fir- the, the one time I'll lose my temper and start yelling, the person will show up right here in the front row in the next week. And they'll be like, hey, you're the guy who, you know. So I'm really careful, really careful about that kind of thing. But, you know, we just unleash our anger on the, in, in those areas. When sin is added to anger, it becomes a huge, huge problem. Sin mixed with anger becomes rage becomes rage, and there's nothing good about rage, out of control. You're out of control. You say and do things you, you never thought you would do or say, things you need to apologize for and repent of afterwards. How, has anger negatively affected your relationships? You know, maybe, maybe your anger is an area of your life that you need to work on. Maybe that's something you need to change. Maybe that's an area of your life where you need to step back and say, you know what, I really need to get that under control. Paul says, put to death, put to death that anger, put it to death. And then you say, well, how? I mean, how do I do that? You, you talk about putting these things to death, but, but how? Let me, let me give you just one thought on this one. And again, we'll, on Wednesdays, we'll come back and we'll, we'll talk about this in greater depth. But let me give you one thought. Here, here's what I'd like you to do. Um, pray. Pray and ask God to help you overcome your anger. God's going to answer you. And here's, here, what you don't want to do is you don't want to pray, oh, Lord God, I pray that I never get angry again. You know, I never get angry. And God's going to answer my prayer that I never get angry again. That's not going to work. It's not going to work. Well, maybe if you pray that, maybe some, by some supernatural power, he, you know, he decides I'm just going to show my power by healing this, this enraged person and all of a sudden they're changed and I get the glory. That, that probably happens once in a while. But the reality is if you pray that God would help you overcome your anger, so you, that's, that's what you, you pray God's going to give you opportunity. So here's what you need to do. You need to pray that God helps you overcome your anger. And then, this is the fun part, you need to look for opportunities for when, you, like Satan will pour in or you're, someone's going to push a button, look for opportunities to get angry and then, then deal with it, overcome it. So first you pray and then you, and you get up in the morning and say, oh boy, oh boy, I can't wait that someone ticks me off today. This is going to be great. My boss is going to come in, he's going to let, and I'm just going to unload. And you, you think, oh, this is a, I can't wait for my next opportunity to, to, to just be enraged so I can control myself. That's what you do. You, you pray, and then you wait for opportunities to overcome your anger. Look for them. Don't just pray and let it go out of your mind. You pray, and then you ask God for opportunities, and then you wait for those opportunities. It's like patience. How many people ever prayed for patience? Did you become patient the next day? Anybody? Raise your hand. You have supernatural patience. Okay, one or two people. Liars. Yes, I'm just kidding. All right, so you pray, you pray for patience. And what does God do? Does God just make you patient overnight? Usually not. What happens is God gives you opportunities to practice that, to, be, to being, being patient. God gives you opportunities to practice your patience. And over time, you become more and more patient. You're the guy who likes to get there on time, or the woman who likes to get there on time, and the other person's spouse is a person who doesn't mind being there five or ten minutes late, and it just drives you nuts the next time that happens. Just take a deep breath, you know what I mean? And just relax. The world's not going to come to an end. Life as we know it's not going to cease. And God gives you an opportunity to show a little bit of patience. Afterwards, you talk about it with your spouse. I really appreciate it if we could be there on time next time. 
But, you know, you show patience at that point. That's what God will help you to do with your anger. It's going to be a process, right? We talked about process. It's going to be a process. Pray that God will help you overcome your anger. Look for opportunities, okay, that will come, that will come because the world is the world. Look for those opportunities. And when they come, seize the opportunity. Don't become angry. Work on it. Do what you're t- you ask your kids to do. Count to 10. One, two, three, four. You know, I don't care how you do it in your mind. Just count to 10 and control yourself. That's one of the ways, and we'll talk more about how we can do things like that on, on, on Wednesday night. Another vulnerability listed by Paul is drunkenness. Drunkenness. Now, today we would use words like, he, he could use words like alcoholism or drug addiction or, uh, or, or chemical addiction. And again, um, I, I know that alcohol in, alcohol in and of itself is not evil, okay? In and of itself, it's not evil, just like sex and anger aren't evil. So alcohol in and of itself is not evil. Now, um, I know that it's not wrong, okay? Not wrong at all to drink. And I could give you the comfortable answer that uh, alcohol drinking is not wrong in and of itself and just kind of move on. But tell you the truth, that's not going to help us this morning. If I just kind of smooth over it and don't want to talk about it, it's not going to help us. We're talking about change. We're talking about bringing about transformation in our lives. So I don't want to just smooth this over. I want to talk about this, you know, and I'll explain my reasons as we go forward. Misusing alcohol and drugs, okay, misusing those things won't help you in your desire for change. When you misuse alcohol and you misuse drugs, it does nothing for you in the area of your life that you want to change. Matter of fact, it's a detriment to those things. So let's agree on two things as we go forward, okay, as we talk this through. Let's agree on two things. That drinking is not wrong, okay, having a drink is not wrong, and that getting drunk is wrong. That's clear in the Bible. It's absolutely clear that getting drunk is wrong. So with that as a foundation, I want to ask you a question. The question is, why do you drink? I want to ask everyone, everyone who's old enough or, you know, why do you drink? That's the question I want you to ask yourself. Why do you drink? Now, it could be, do you say, maybe you're saying, well, it takes the edge off. It helps me sleep. Um, it, it maybe allows me to fit in uh, to a social setting. Uh, it allows me to loosen up socially in some settings. Uh, it gives me a buzz. I need to anesthetize. Uh, I like the taste. I own a winery or whatever, you know, I, I don't know, whatever it is for you. Answer, just, it's just the question. It's just the question. Why do you drink? I'd love for you to answer that question. And if, if my asking the question makes you defensive, then my friend, you're probably drinking for the wrong reason. Because I am not judging. I am not throwing out anything here. All I'm doing is asking a question for you, for all of us, for me. The question is, why do you drink? I think we need, all need to answer that question. It's important when it comes to bringing about change in our lives. He, do you, did you know that 90% of the people who come into my office with a, with a challenging story, a really sad story, an overwhelming story, a heart, whatever, you wanna, whatever story you, you want to lay it out. But 90% of the people coming into my office who lay out a story start with one of two things. Um, I had too much to drink. They had too much to drink. And then they go, after they say, I had too much to drink, they had too much to drink, then they go on and tell me the story and the, the challenge that they have in their lives and the difficulty they face in their lives. It is, it is absolutely amazing. Here's my problem. People will use the Jesus turn water into, the, into wine story to drink and then not have the spiritual discipline to drink in moderation. 
So they'll say, well, Jesus, they'll go out and do things, and, and, you'll, and if you even have the, the courage or whatever to, to kind of point it out that, hey, you're, you're, this is not just having a drink. They'll say, well, Jesus turned water into wine. That's their argument. Well, G- Jesus walked on water too. You know, why don't you go try to do that? Why don't you go try walking on water? He turned water into wine. He walked on water. Why don't you try to do that? Jesus also said to sell all your possessions and go and give to the poor. Why don't, why don't you do that? Jesus also never sinned. He never sinned. And he didn't turn water into wine to give you an excuse to drink too much. I didn't say drinking was a sin. I say Jesus never sinned. And getting drunk is wrong. And Jesus never turned, he didn't turn the water into wine to give anyone an excuse to drink too much and to have a negative effect on their own lives and on the lives of others. This is just reality. It has a profound effect on our lives. Now, listen to this. Go through the list of all the things that Paul, all the negative things that Paul lays out in this passage and, and, and answer me this. How does alcohol curb them? How does, drinking, how, do, how does getting drunk curb those things that Paul is talking about? I'm not talking about drinking. I'm talking about getting drunk. I'm talking about whatever, whatever alters your state of mind. How does that curb the things that Paul is talking about here? How does it help to change, bring about change in your life? I can give you story after story of how alcohol affects, negatively affects those things. And, you know, if we're going to talk about change, we need to be honest I can't stand up here and just candy coat this stuff and just scoot over it because the reality is this has a profound effect on people's desire to change or ability to change. So we need to be honest. We need to be honest with each other. See, many of you drink because it allows you to engage in the very things that you're trying to overcome. Many people drink on purpose because then it allows them to engage in the, in the very things that they're trying to overcome. We need to be honest and just call it what it is. Jesus didn't turn water into wine so that we would have an excuse to dull our minds and fail in the areas that we're trying to overcome. It didn't happen. You're reading the wrong story. It was a miracle. And Jesus didn't, didn't, didn't tell these stories or do these miracles to give us excuses to not become more like him. It dulls your mind and becomes an excuse for failure. And I'm going to tell you, if you're using it for that reason, you know, just straight up, if you're using it for that reason or you need it for any reason, then you need to put it to death. If you're using it for the reason I just described, and you know what? You know your own motives, you know your own motives. You know if you do that, you're going to do it too. You drink, you personally drink sometimes too much, and it's going to allow you to in, walk into an environment that you, where you don't need to be. If that's the case and you know it in your heart, you know it in your heart, or you're, you're drinking because you need it for any reason, then you need to put it to death. Okay, recap. Recap. Very important. Very important. I am not... I am not in any way challenging anyone's freedom in Christ to drink. You need to hear that. I have no issue, okay? No issue. I'm not challenging anyone's freedom. We have freedom in Christ. I am not under law. I'm under grace. I am not challenging anyone's freedom in Christ to drink. What I'm challenging is, what I'm challenging is a person who is drinking for the wrong reasons. That's what I'm challenging, 
I'm looking at you, I'm trying to look everyone right in the face, and I'm challenging the person who's doing it for the wrong reason, and that's having a profound and negative impact on your life and the lives of those around you. Still love me? Okay, good. This is not a, this is, uh, Church Growth 101, this is not the sermon you preach, okay, if you want to grow, grow your church. Church Growth 101, avoid these topics, especially the next one. Another area of vulnerability is pride, okay, and now six more people can get up and leave, and it's like, well, now I'm not really, you know, I don't have an issue with pride, I just don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear him talk about it. The other issue that Paul brings up is pride. Paul uses words such as pride, selfish ambition, covetousness, envy, all those things. He's saying we have to rid ourselves of those things. Once again, pride and ambition in and of themselves are not evil. They're not evil. They're not wrong. They're not wrong, but when the power of evil gets a hold of our pride and ambition, they are distorted and become, become dangerous. They become dangerous in our lives. They become something that we have to, they become so destructive in our lives, something that we need to try to overcome and avoid. You know, in the church, these are things we just don't talk about anymore because we're so afraid that someone's going to get upset that we're talking about. You know, people in the church walk around sometimes and they're arrogant and they're, they're filled with pride and no one wants to touch it. No one wants to even bring it up. Do you know the impact that pride and arrogance can have on a church or have on people's lives? Do you know that, that, that how, how that un, unchecked can have such a negative effect on the body of Christ? You know, we, we start out, it's okay. We start out using our, our, once, our, our once healthy pride and ambition begins to, begins to get distorted. And we begin to, to serve our own egos with our gifts and abilities. God has given us different gifts and abilities. And we take those gifts and abilities. If no one ever calls us on our pride and our arrogance, if you have a student and they're, they're arrogant, they're, they're getting too pumped up, they're getting too full of themselves, don't allow that to continue. Because what happens is we look at our pride, we look at our, our gifts and our abilities, and we start, to, we start to feed and serve our own egos with our gifts and abilities instead of serving others. The reason you have the gifts and abilities and, the, and all, the, all, the, all, the thing, all the positive things that you have in your life, the Bible says, is to build up the body of Christ. It is to build up the body, to edify the body. But what happens is when pride and arrogance take a right turn and go off, all of a sudden you start to use all those things to benefit yourself. You start to feed your own ego. You start, to, you're, you start to serve your own ego rather than other people. And it happens all the time. And, and, and then all of a sudden you, you become, uh, you, you lose perspective. And even if you have a lot, even if God has given you a lot, it's not enough. And we become jealous of other people. We start to covet their stuff. We start to covet their, um, their, their, their income. We start to covet um, their lifestyle. And what we have is not enough. And we think, you know, we should have more and I should be better. And we start to elevate ourselves above other people. We need to see people who, who, the way that God sees them. We need to put ourselves in a position. We need to, we need to step back and get some humility. I mean, you want to overcome this. The way to overcome this, the way to change is to pray again for humility. If you, you know yourself, you know if you're looking, you, you don't have to say it, don't raise your hand, but you know if you're beginning to look down on other people and think yourself better than everyone else. If that's the case, pray for humility. 
This is, this is humility in a nutshell. Recognizing who I am in relation to God. When I understand who I am in relation to God, I'm humble. If I just put, if I don't know the character of God, and I don't, I'm not really reading the word of God, and I'm not thinking about God, then, I, then arrogance and pride and all that can just come to the top. But when I recognize who I am in relation to God, it puts things in perspective. It brings humility to my life. So we need to pray for humility. Then we need to practice humility. Seeing others as they are created in the image of God with value and treating them as such. Just because you're smarter than someone else or you have more than someone else or whatever more than someone else, you're more gifted than someone else, it doesn't mean that you're better than they are. The Bible tells us to put others before ourselves, to think of others before we think of ourselves. It doesn't say, well, unless you're smarter and stronger and faster and richer or, or you know, even people who have, have less sometimes become arrogant with that. But the Bible says, hey, it's not about, it's, it's about, it's about you in relation to me. These people, all of us are creating the image of God with value. We have to treat them with value. We have to treat them that way. You know what some of us need to do? We need to do a study on, on, um, on perspective, having a, a perspective. We need to do a study on contentment, being biblically content, being satisfied with what God has given us, not being complacent, not being lazy, not sitting back and just kind of saying, well, I am who I am. I don't need to grow anymore. You know that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about looking at your life and what you have and saying, God, thank you for giving me this satisfaction, being satisfied with where God has you now because he'll continue to help you grow. Do a biblical study on contentment and satisfaction. If, if, you, if pride and arrogance is something in your life that you need to work on, start working on it because that will have a profound impact on, your, on, on yourself, on your relationship with others, and on your relationship with God. A profound impact on those things. You need to remember that pride is at the root of most other sins. Pride was the original sin, second one. I mean, go down the list. Pride is at the root of most other sins. And if we don't humble ourselves, the Bible is absolutely clear that God will humble us. God will humble us. Who, who, who wants to wait for God's humbling? Not me. I'd rather work on that in my own life. The Spirit of Christ wants to permeate every area of our lives. Ask yourself, where do I need to change? Close your eyes with me this morning. Just close your eyes as we close. And I want you to ask yourself this question. And keep asking yourself, where do I need to change? Now, you may think, I've worked on so many areas of my life that I, the biggies are gone. But you know what? Start to think the next level down, the smaller areas of your life. None of us are Jesus. All of us need to grow. So where in Jeff Greer's life does he need to change? Where in your life do you need to change? Think about that. And then as you're thinking about that, you need to believe that our attitudes and our actions can be changed. That, that the thing that you're struggling with the most is not too much for God. That God can change you from the inside out. You need to give it to him. You need to lay it at the cross. Uh, you know, where, what the environment you grew up in has an impact on who you are as a person. Your, your genetics have an impact on who you are as a person. But the Holy Spirit who lives in you, 
the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead can overwhelm both your environment and your genetics and change you into the person that he's created you to be. People say because of this and that, you have a tendency to be this way or that way. My friends, you have a tendency to be more like your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You just need to let the Holy Spirit of God begin to work in your life, permeate you from the inside out, change your thoughts, change your attitudes, change your actions. Think about what area of my life do I need to change? God can make you a new creation. God can make you a new person. We will work together. We will work together as a church. Sunday mornings, Wednesdays, small groups, we will work together as a church to try to bring about the changes that we all desperately want to see in our lives. Find someone who can hold you accountable. Spend time in prayer. Ask God to transform you from the inside out and realize it's a process. It may not happen overnight, but if you continue to walk forward, if you continue to walk with him, he will lead you away from those areas of weakness to a place of strength. Instability. God, we thank you so much for this time that we can spend together and, and just ask, dear God, that you would transform each one of us, that you'd work on every area of our lives, Father, that we would not hold on to something so tight that it would become a stumbling block in our lives. Father, that we would truly ask the questions that need to be asked that we would go into our own hearts and our minds, that we would judge our own motives, that we look into our own lives and judge our own motives as to why we do what we do. And Lord, when you make that known to us and it breaks us a little bit inside to realize that we are sinners saved by grace, that you would pick us up, that you would carry us, that you would show us your mercy and your grace and your love. Show us the extent of your grace. Show us the extent of your love. Father, we lay all these things that are in our minds right now, we lay them at the foot of the cross. And we ask that over the next few months and years that you would allow us to work on those things together as the body of Christ, as families. And that, Lord God, you would do miracles in this place. That lives would be transformed. That, that relationships, that marriages would be transformed. That families would be transformed. The way we think and the way we act would be transformed, that we would see miracles and hear testimonies of your power working inside out. And Father, we praise you. We praise you in advance for we know you're going to do in and through us because we trust you as a God who can do all things, who can heal all things, who can overcome all things and change all things. We trust you in that. In Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.